Greetings, this is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. This episode is going to be an audio version of a book review that I have written. It was actually an extended uh, article-length review of a book by Steve McVeigh that is titled Grace Walk uh, that was published in 1995 by Harvest House. And the book is 188 pages in length. Um, This review article that I wrote on Steve McVeigh's Grace Walk first appeared in the Evangelical Forum Newsletter, Volume 1, Number 4, in 2004. And it could be found there on pages 8 through 14. At one point, this book review was very widely read. It was probably one of the most widely read things that I posted in the early years of my having a blog and posting things online. Again, the book was originally written in 1995, and in the early 2000s, it was still being widely read and talked about. And uh, I decided to do this review And it got a lot of interest and attention at the time. But as the years have gone on, uh, again, the original book appeared now 28 years ago. I've heard less uh, response about the review. But just last week, I had someone get in touch and who wanted to read the review. And I realized that the review that I had posted to a a Google Docs site, uh, that that site had been changed and the links were broken and the review was no longer available to be read online. So I'm going to take this written version, which has been lightly edited uh, from the original that appeared in the Evangelical Forum newsletter, and I'm going to be posting it to my academia.edu site uh, so that it can be read there alongside of being listened to uh, here in this audio format. And so with that, let's go ahead and move to the review. Now, the title of the review article is A Review of Steve McVeigh, Grace Walk. And the first footnote, there are a couple of footnotes in the article. The first footnote reads as follows. This review article was written upon the announcement that Steve McVeigh would be the plenary speaker at the 2004 meeting of the Baptist General Association of Virginia. It examines the 1995 book, Grace Walk, which presents the signature themes and emphases of McVeigh's ministry. To find out more about this ministry, see the website gracewalk.org. Other works by McVeigh include the book Grace Rules from Harvest House in 1998, Grace Amazing, also from Harvest House in 2001, A Divine Invitation, also from Harvest House in 2002, and finally, The Godward Gaze, Harvest House 2003. And so with that title and opening footnote, let's go to the review, the body of the review itself. The basic thesis of Grace Walk is that Christians should live by grace and not by legalism. Believers do this not by trying to conform to external rules, even not even basic disciplines, like having quiet times, reading the Bible, or attending church, but by resting in the fact that as believers, Christ lives in them. On the surface, there are parts of this approach that may sound appealing. 
Certainly, all true believers will heartily agree that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. One might also heartily amen McVeigh's denunciation of any notion of self-sufficiency when it comes to the Christian life. With careful examination and reflection, however, the reader will find that McVeigh has taken some major detours from the classical biblical doctrines of salvation and sanctification. Unfortunately, McVeigh's theology leads in the dangerous direction of antinomianism, hardly the healing biblical cure for legalism. Rather than offering a robust biblical critique of the spirit of this age, Grace Walk conforms to the mold of this world by promoting a relativistic Jesus spirituality that downplays any firm doctrinal commitments about who that Jesus is. Grace Walk begins with McVeigh's autobiographical account of how he came to this spiritual breakthrough. He describes moving from a successful pastorate in Alabama to a church in Atlanta that he expected successfully to turn around. Footnote 2 reads, One of the quirks of McVeigh's book is that although he freely shares the details of this spiritual crisis, he never directly identifies the churches he served. He is no more forthcoming on his website. One might read the book and still be left unsure of his confessional background. Is he a Methodist, a Baptist, a disciple of Christ? His ministry's website does note that he is a graduate of Luther Rice Seminary, so we might surmise that he is a Baptist. Of course, McVeigh also makes clear in the book that he has moved beyond denominationalism since, as he puts it, quote, no church or denomination is totally right or totally wrong, end quote, page 161. Returning to the, to the review. To his surprise, however, after a year of standard church growth efforts, his new church had actually experienced numerical decline. He writes, quote, For the first time in my 17 years of ministry, a church I served had declined in attendance during my first year. I was appalled, end quote, page 13. This so-called failure drove McVeigh to a spiritual breakdown in 1990 and to the realization that he had been relying on his own self-sufficiency. He credits this watershed moment of being spiritually broken with his turnaround. He is less clear in relaying how his church received his new insights and why he chose to leave this pastorate and to begin this parachurch ministry. We might pause here to say that there is much in McVeigh's story that is laudable. It sounds as though he, like many other pastors, has come to a genuine sense of dissatisfaction with the corporate and church growth methods that are currently being peddled in the evangelical church market. He, he is to be admired for sharing how efforts at growing his church numerically were more closely tied to his own ego gratification than to a genuine desire to bring glory to God. The problem rests in what McVeigh suggests as the appropriate response to the current state of evangelical church life. That is, he suggests a decreased emphasis on doctrine and discipline, the latter he falsely labels as legalism. We readily admit that McVeigh's book is not put forward as a work of systematic theology. It is written at a popular level 
and does not seek a sophisticated level of doctrinal precision. It is, however, necessarily a work of practical theology, telling believers how they should think, believe, and act. Therefore, its theological claims must be taken seriously. Our examination of the doctrinal content of Grace Walk will fall into four general areas. First, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Second, antinomianism, lawlessness. Third, relativism. And fourth, exegesis. So let's begin with soteriology. The first question we must ask concern, concerns McVeigh's views on salvation and the related doctrines of justification, imputation, and sanctification. Soteriology is by far the most complicated and confusing theme in McVeigh's book. One of his cornerstone arguments is that when we become believers, we possess the Spirit of Christ and are therefore delivered from any human efforts to achieve godliness. He refers to this as the exchanged life. And here is footnote three. More light is shed on McVeigh's doctrinal background on his website. In the Frequently Asked Questions section at gracewalk.org, he answers the question, what is the Grace Walk, with reference to those whom he claims as his spiritual heirs. He writes on this website, Through the years, various other believers have described the Grace Walk with other terms, such as the Exchange Life, Hudson Taylor, the Abiding Life, Andrew Murray, the Crucified Life, L.E. Maxwell, Life on the Highest Plane, Ruth Paxson, The Interior Life, Hannah Whittall Smith, The Normal Christian Life, Watchman Nee, The Victorious Christian Life, Alan Redpath and Ian Thomas, and The Miracle Life, David Needham. In other words, McVeigh bases his views on spirituality on a tradition of what we might call evangelical mysticism. It is interesting to note that in Grace Walk, McVeigh makes mention of his involvement with another Atlanta-based ministry called Grace Ministries International. This ministry's website contains a frequently asked questions section that is nearly identical to McVeigh's. It should be noted that McVeigh's website also includes a doctrinal statement that encompasses the standard evangelical shibboleths like inerrancy. It is ironic that the Baptist General Association of Virginia, which has lambasted leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention for upholding inerrancy, have invited a purported inerrantist to speak at its annual meeting. As we shall see, however, McVeigh's claims to inerrancy are suspect. As the Evangelical Theological Society has learned in recent years, with the controversy over open theism, one may give lip service to inerrancy and still arrive at unorthodox theological conclusions. Let's return now to the review. McVeigh stresses that as believers, we have a new identity in Christ. We are a new creation. The old man has died and a new man has arrived. These are certainly ideas rooted in the biblical theme of salvation as union with Christ. The problem comes with some of the things that McVeigh says alongside this. He implies that when one becomes a believer, the sin nature 
is completely obliterated. He says, quote, You, as a Christian, don't have two natures. The only nature any Christian has is the nature of the Lord Jesus himself. End quote, pages 56 and 57. This is the heart of his later arguments about Christians no longer needing to struggle against sin by the development of spiritual disciplines. McVeigh acknowledges that although Christians now have a new identity in Christ, that they do not always act according to their new natures. He fends off the accusation that his view promotes Christian perfectionism. He writes, quote, This in no way means that you will live a life of sinless perfection, end quote, page 63. But his views seem particularly open to that charge. It also leads him to take some decidedly anti-somatic, dualistic stances. McVeigh takes a trichotomous view of human nature, arguing, quote, you consist of three parts, body, soul, and spirit, end quote, page 43. He further offers this rather platonic assessment, quote, someone has said that a person is a spirit who has a soul and lives in a body, end quote, page 43. He approvingly quotes Bill Gillum as saying, quote, we know that he, God, would never violate his own admonition by joining into union the old man and the new man inside your earth suit. End quote, page 63. Footnote 4 at this point reads, In the book's opening acknowledgement, McVeigh states up front that he is especially grateful to Bill Gillum, Gillum also wrote Grace Walks Forward, in which he commends McVeigh for showing us, quote, that God's plan is for you and the Spirit of Christ to cohabit our earth suit and become dear, intimate friends as together we experience victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, end quote, page 10. Gillum is a former psychology professor and leader of Lifetime Guarantee Ministry. See gospelcom.net backslash lifetime. He has apparently had a strong influence in the formation of McVeigh's so-called exchange life spirituality. I, for one, am troubled by his notion of the body as a so-called earth suit. The Bible, unlike the sacred writings of many dualistic religions, does not have a negative view of human embodiment. Pre-fall creation is pronounced good in Genesis 1.31. Jesus himself takes on flesh, John 1.14. The doctrine of the resurrection proclaims that the body, and not just the spirit, will be transformed. See 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. That's the end of the footnote. Returning to the review. Again, this notion of union with Christ becomes the bedrock for McVeigh's argument that believers need not struggle with sin. He exudes, quote, God never intended for the Christian life to be a struggle, end quote, page 70. The danger is that McVeigh is unfortunately departing from classical biblical understandings of salvation. The Bible teaches that when one becomes a believer, 
he does indeed enjoy a different standing before God, having been justified by faith and having had the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. See Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Nevertheless, he still must struggle with sin. See Romans 7, verses 13 through 25. In the present age, God draws believers into greater holiness in the process known as sanctification that does not end until by grace we enter into the final stage of glorification. See Romans 8, 29 through 30. The great reformer spoke of the believer's present state as simul justus et peccator, at the same time both justified and a sinner. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson notes that, quote, The Christian has died to sin in Christ's dying victory, but sin itself has not yet been destroyed. It remains sin still, end quote. Footnote 5 indicates that this quotation from Sinclair Ferguson comes from his book, The Christian Life, A Doctrinal Introduction, published by The Manor of Truth in 1981. And the footnote adds, this book is recommended as a biblically balanced corrective to McVeigh's theology. Returning to the review, it appears that McVeigh, however, confuses the doctrines of justification, imputation, and sanctification. He argues, quote, God only imputed righteousness to Old Testament saints, but he imparted righteousness to you when you were saved. Imputing righteousness was a legal verdict, but imparting righteousness is a literal event that happens to New Testament saints. In these days of grace, Christians are literally given the righteousness of Christ. Lot had righteousness credited to him, but you had righteousness created in you when you were saved. Don't believe the lie that you are a worm. You are a butterfly. End quote, page 51. This statement introduces several novel notions. First, McVeigh implies that salvation is qualitatively different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. In so doing, he seems to deny forensic justification and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ for New Testament believers. Second, his argument for so-called imparted righteousness sounds very much like the Roman Catholic doctrine of infused righteousness. Protestants have typically avoided any blending of justification and sanctification, but McVeigh deviates from this path. Most significantly, he does so with no appeal to supporting biblical evidence. Soteriology is a central issue in the creation of McVeigh's practical theology. His stress on the believer's ability to live above, if not without, sin due to his spiritual union with Christ, however, might be described as a revival of the error of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Paul condemned these two men in 2 Timothy 2.18, noting, quote, concerning the truth they have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, end quote. In a similar way, one might say that McVeigh evinces an over-realized eschatology by saying that believers possess a status in the present age that allows them to live above sin. 
The biblical perspective, in contrast, is that such a state will not be fully realized till the final stage of glorification. Second of these four areas of critique relates to antinomianism. Second, McVeigh's theology suggests antinomian or lawlessness tendencies. He asserts that if you are a believer whose identity has been totally changed to Christ-likeness, then in truth, you cannot really sin. You therefore no longer have to fret over breaking God's law or striving to obey God's law. In a quote borrowed from Bob George, he states, quote, in exactly the same way God sees you as his new creatures in Christ. Although you might not exactly always act like a good butterfly, you might land on things you shouldn't or forget you are a butterfly and crawl around with your old worm buddies. The truth of the matter is you are never going to be a worm again, end quote, page 48. In keeping with this idea, McVeigh attacks any notion that one must obey God's moral law. He makes little to no effort even to distinguish between Old Testament law and the law of Christ in the New Testament. For McVeigh, Christians are completely free from the law. He describes all efforts to obey divine law as legalism, since any approach to Christian living that focuses on keeping rules as a means of experience victory or growing spirituality is, as he puts it on page 80, legalism. In response, we might point out that biblical Christianity certainly does not encourage slavish legalism. Jesus was particularly harsh on the Pharisees on this matter. It would be wrong, however, to say that Jesus did not demand obedience to divine commands. It would also be wrong to deny the New Testament's teaching of the abiding validity of the moral law of God as epitomized in the Ten Commandments. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. The Bible does not encourage legalism, but it does encourage discipline and obedience. Discipline appears to be the missing word in McVeigh's theological system. Authentic biblical discipline is not legalism. We might note one example cited by, by McVeigh as he makes his argument. He describes a couple in his church who had struggled with consistency in attending the church's meetings and who had made a commitment not to miss a single Sunday meeting of the church for one year. McVeigh's response, quote, I cringed inside as I listened, end quote, page 80. He reflects, quote, it is certainly good for Christians to attend church, but they turn church attendance into a self-imposed law. The question one would like to ask McVeigh is how he understands Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, when the inspired author admonishes, quote, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. In fact, it appears that McVeigh will have a difficult time with the Bible's constant exhortations, admonishments, and encouragements to believers to live disciplined, godly lives. Somehow, McVeigh decided that his task as a pastor 
was to liberate this couple from their desire to obey the spirit of Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. McVeigh's approach also encourages not the confrontation and rooting out of sin, but the ignoring of it. Again, he exudes, quote, We don't experience victory over the flesh by being preoccupied with it. End quote, page 97. But what of Paul's admonition in Romans 8.13 that believers mortify the deeds of the body? McVeigh does not seem to take seriously enough the enduring power of sin and man's sinful human tendencies even beyond his conversion. At one point in the book, McVeigh appears to acknowledge that his theological system holds antinomian tendencies. He reflects, quote, As I began living my Christian life under grace, I wondered if I should be careful not to get out of balance with grace. I questioned whether or not pure grace might encourage me to sin, end quote, page 117. In the end, however, he concludes that his grace walk has done more to motivate him, quote, to live a godly lifestyle than a thousand laws could ever do, end quote, page 117. This has obviously been a soft spot for McVeigh. On his website, he offers a link to frequently asked questions, including the question, does grace lead to a lawless attitude in the Christian life, in which he strongly denies antinomianism? Still, a close reading of Grace Walk raises grave questions in this area. Third uh, point of examination, relativism. Third, Gracewalk demonstrates a pronounced tendency toward relativism. Here, more than anywhere else, McVeigh seems to reflect the spirit of the age in which we live. In this vein, McVeigh titles one chapter, The Vice of Values. For McVeigh, rules and values are a great evil because, according to him, they are merely social constructs. He states that, quote, Every society defines rights and wrongs according to its own standards, and people's lives are judged on the basis of conformity to those standards, end quote, page 107. According to McVeigh, quote, God is not interested in systems of living. He is interested in relationships, end quote, page 105. McVeigh then draws this astounding relativistic conclusion, quote, the definitive question in the life of the believer is not, would it be wrong for me to do this, but am I abiding in Christ at this moment? End quote, page 109. Seeking shock value, he states, quote, I highly recommend that you give up your Christian values. End quote, page 110. He adds, quote, Now I don't measure my life by right and wrong. My aim is simply to abide in Christ. By doing that, issues of right and wrong become incidental. End quote, page 111. Amazingly, McVeigh argues that, quote, the desire to live right is an improper goal for the Christian. End quote, page 113. Later, in a parable about Mr. Law and Mr. Grace, he concludes, quote, How can you enjoy your relationship to Jesus if you are always checking the rules to find out what you can and can't do. He doesn't care about rules. 
Right and wrong are incidental to him. He loves you and wants you to enjoy his love and then love him right back. End quote, page 117. This is rank situation ethics and is at complete odds with the moral absolutes of Scripture. It places a subjective evaluation of one's experience of Jesus over fixed moral laws drawn from the Bible. My question for McVeigh would be this. Does your ethic then allow a believer under certain circumstances to procure an abortion as long as she feels she is being true to her relationship to Christ? What about to engage in homosexual practice, to commit adultery? Biblical Christianity asserts that the prime question is, in fact, would it be wrong for me to do this because it violates the unchanging word of God? Given his rejection of moral absolutes, it comes as no surprise that McVeigh does not offer a high view of the authority of Scripture in the believer's life. It seems that all propositional truth is suspect in McVeigh's sight. He exudes, quote, It was only after I began to understand grace that I realized that God never intended that we should live by the Bible. We are to live by his life, end quote, page 137. But pray tell, how do we know of Christ's life apart from the Bible? Just as he tells the anecdote of the couple who foolishly wanted to make a commitment to disciplined church attendance, McVeigh also includes an anecdote about a poor soul named Mark who wanted to begin a consistent plan of Bible reading. But thankfully, McVeigh disabused him of the notion that he needed, quote, his neat list of commandments, end quote, page 129. Just think what he could have done with poor Timothy, when Paul exhorted him to give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine in 1 Timothy 4.13. In this relativistic vein, McVeigh also stresses that the believer is to be completely non-judgmental. He reflects, quote, One walking in grace accepts people on the basis of unconditional love, end quote, page 158. He does defer that this does not mean, quote, blanket approval for all behavior, end quote, but insists that, quote, grace allows one to accept and love others regardless of their actions. Legalists set out to change what people do. Grace looks beyond what others do and affirms them for who they are, encouraging them to live up to their identity. End quote, page 158. Unfortunately, this sounds more like modern pop psychology than biblical truth. Jesus forgave the woman taken in adultery, but he also told her to go and sin no more, John 8, 11. In other words, by McVeigh's definition, Jesus was a legalist, since he told the woman to change what she was doing as part of changing who she was becoming. This necessarily leaves no room for church discipline, since, quote, condemnation of a believer never comes from God, end quote, page 159. Too bad Paul did not have grace walk, before he told the Corinthian believers, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person and deliver him unto Satan. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 and verse 5. Relativism also guides McVeigh's thoughts on doctrine and Christian fellowship. Not surprisingly, he downplays doctrine. Quote, to say that you are a Christian doesn't simply refer to the particular set of doctrinal beliefs you hold, 
It doesn't just refer to the way you live. It points to what you are at the deepest level of your being. End quote, page 68. Even churches, according to McVeigh, should not be evaluated by their doctrine. He concludes, quote, If one insists on evaluating modern church life on the basis of right and wrong, then all Christian churches are right and all of them are wrong. In other words, no church or denomination is totally right or totally wrong. End quote, page 161. Churches must not allow what McVeigh calls superfluous dogma to conceal the truth. See page 161. A grace perspective on church, quote, doesn't demand that we all agree on every detail of faith and practice. End quote, page 161. The problem, of course, is that McVeigh's thoughts put the purity of the church's doctrine and witness in jeopardy. According to his system, can Orthodox believers have fellowship with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses? What about mainline Episcopalians when they uncritically approve of homosexual behavior and ordain unrepentant homosexuals to ministry? Should we overlook this as mere superfluous dogma, a mere disagreement on arcane details of faith and practice? Can we have fellowship with any church or denomination as long as they are willing to call themselves Christians? Fourth and final area of evaluation relates to exegesis. The final area of contention I had with this book has to do with the lack of exegetical foundations. Again, in fairness, we recognize that Grace Walk is not a commentary, nor does it intend to present detailed exegesis of Scripture. Nevertheless, all Christian theology must be based on proper handling of the Bible. We are to rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2.15. This book is woefully lacking in this area. Let me point to one particular glaring example found on pages 57 and 58. McVeigh offers here an interpretation of Galatians 2.20, which begins, I am crucified with Christ. In this interpretation, he makes this confusing statement, quote, When Paul said that he had been crucified with Christ, he spoke of a past event. The Greek word translated crucified is in the present tense, indicating that it was a historical event which continues to have present implications. End quote, pages 57 and 58. The problem with this analysis is that the Greek word rendered I am crucified in the King James Version or I have been crucified in the New King James Version is not in the original Greek in the present tense, but in the perfect tense. Such unsure handling of the word of God leads one to doubt the credibility of the foundations on which the rest of McVeigh's argument is built. As I read this book, I found scripture passages repeatedly coming to mind that offered direct contradiction to McVeigh's arguments. Let me cite one example. In his chapter on the vice of values, McVeigh makes a point of saying that Christians should not engage in what he calls constant self-examination, page 112. There rushed to my mind, however, scriptures like Paul's admonition that before the Lord's Supper, a man should examine himself, 1 Corinthians 11.28, that we should work out our faith with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12, that we should take heed to ourselves and to our doctrine in 1 Timothy 4.16. 
In like manner, McVeigh's round rejection of all disciplined obedience as legalism brought the, brought the sharp contrast to mind of Paul's encouragement to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, to exercise thyself rather unto godliness. The margins of my copy of McVeigh's book are filled on nearly every page with contrasting scriptural cross-references that deny McVeigh's assertions. In the end, I did not find that this book was true to the spirit and themes of sacred scripture. As this review has made clear, I found much in McVeigh's grace walk to be spiritually dangerous. It offers a deformed view of soteriology and sanctification that does not do justice to the believer's continuing battle with sin. It abandons the Bible's clear call to discipline and godliness. It may well lead one to lawlessness. It reflects a relativistic perspective that sees no clear rights and wrongs. It is based on flimsy exegesis. In many ways, I think the grace walk approach reflects the baby boomer-shaped values of its author. McVeigh was born in 1954. It is in many ways theology for the self-indulgent evangelical baby boomer, justifying his jettisoning of basic Christian disciplines, commitments, and expectations. He need not busy himself with such things as committed church attendance, membership, scripture reading, and memorization. He also need not judge others. By the way, the converse is also true. No one has the right to judge or evaluate him. McVeigh seems to believe that the major problem facing the church today is legalism. When I surveyed the modern church landscape, however, this hardly seems to be our problem. The basic problem we face is not low spiritual self-esteem. It is not that we are just way too hard on ourselves and demand too much from ourselves spiritually. It is not that our churches are overly focused on right doctrine. Our problem is generally not legalism, but hubris, libertinism, and rebellion against biblical standards. The major trouble with Steve McVeigh's grace walk is a faulty understanding of grace. We do not understand the grace of God until we understand his wrath, a concept that is completely absent from the pages of Grace Walk. The non-judgmental, unconditional, man-centered so-called grace that McVeigh describes is distant from the biblical presentations of God's sovereign and free grace. It is closer to what some might describe as cheap grace. And here ends this review article. You can receive audiobook reviews and notes like this one, Word Magazine podcasts and sermons by subscribing to Christ Reformed Baptist Church's sermon audio feed on iTunes by searching for Christ Reformed Baptist Church. For video material, you can subscribe to the Word Magazine channel on youtube.com. You can also find written book reviews, notes, and articles on my blog at jeffriddle.net. And you can follow me on Twitter at Riddle1689.